Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This show is being sponsored in part by the Sportsman's Guide. Look in the description below for a link where you can find a significant amount of gear for survival and many outdoor pursuits. of people are the bad guys. The problem is when you're in public safety, you see that 10%, 90% of the time. Your heart's racing, you're breathing fast, you're sweating for no reason, your mouth is dry, you feel like you have tunnel vision or you're about to pass out, Uh, your body's shaking from the adrenaline dump. I'm not crazy. I don't like what happened. I don't like this feeling. I don't like the anger that I have right now. You know what? There's other people out there that are feeling the same way. So at least I know I'm not crazy. What I didn't see, uh, these changes that I was rapidly making, both in my career and my personal life, organizational stress continued to skyrocket. In fact, it went up by a factor of 1.8 out of a 120-point scale for every year you remained in law enforcement. Welcome to the Survival Show Podcast with me, Craig, and producer Ben, where it's our job to take you step-by-step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster, and show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. So David is still gone, so it's just going to be me and Ben in the background, but fortunately, we've got a guest, and I'll be telling you more about that in just a moment and what he's all about. Our mission here at the Survival Show Podcast is to help you progressively increase your survival IQ so you leave out of here today better prepared at the end of the show than you were at the beginning. So coming up next, we're going to be talking to Dr. Trevor Wilkins, who is a friend of mine from Thin Line Consulting. We're going to be discussing survival as it pertains to post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and other stressors experienced by first responders. This show is going to be very insightful for two groups of people. Obviously, the first responders and the stresses that first responders deal with, but also to the families, friends, and community members on what we can do to help support the people that do these very difficult jobs. Trevor, again, is a friend of mine, and he's incredibly and uniquely qualified to discuss this topic with us, and we'll get him to tell us about his education experience in a moment. Welcome, Dr. Wilkins, my friend Trevor, to the podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I was just sitting here thinking during the intro that uh, you and I first met in 2003. Uh, I didn't know. It's been a while. Yeah, it I'm was glad you said that. I started taking some classes from you uh, in a, in a different world. Uh, it feels yeah. like, but uh, you know, had you said that that these years later that we would be speaking on a podcast <laughs> in two completely <laughs> different career fields, uh, exactly. I looked at you cross-eyed. But here we are. Yeah. So for those listening, Trevor and I used to beat each other up <laughs> in, yeah. uh, for fun in in martial arts training together. So that's that was good stuff. So let's get into your special today, Trevor. Uh, how did you come about getting into this specialty of treating PTSD and traumatic stress? So I had just talked about you know the two different career paths you and I have taken uh, after meeting each other. Uh, when I knew you uh, before in a different life, I uh, served initially uh, for three years as an EMT fireman and police dispatcher, and then became a police officer at the age of 21. I did that job for 15 years, uh, uniform law enforcement. Uh, my career came to an end after about the 15-year mark, a little little quicker than I wanted, but um, you know, you never you never know the path you're going to take. And the path I took next was dealing with. Uh, stress, whether it be traumatic stress, whether it be um, depression, anxiety. I I knew those were things that were really important to me that I had seen through my policing career and I wanted to help out with. So uh, 
actually, when I got out of law enforcement, I, I didn't even have a bachelor's degree. And so I had to work my way from bachelor's, master's, and PhD all the way through. And Golly, man, now I am a uh, licensed psychotherapist here in Lexington, Kentucky. And as you alluded, my agency is Thin Line Counseling and Consulting. So this is what I do full time now. Um, a majority of my clients are public safety members, and the rest are typically trauma victims. Uh, people that are dealing with, I have an additional specialty of adults that have childhood trauma uh, that I work with. And then, uh, you know, just your more generalized depression and anxiety also treat. Right. That's good stuff. So good stuff. What I mean by good stuff, not that is good stuff, but your career path is good stuff because you have such an experience with these things too, uh, hands on. Your own experience with PTSD, I think, if I understood our brief chat the other day, led to some of these career paths that you've taken here and getting into providing treatment for others. You want to tell us about that and how that came about? Sure. And interestingly enough, uh, had you asked me about this when my career first ended, I, I would not have been as open about what ended my career. Um, you know, it did not end on what I would consider a good note. There was definitely definitely nothing illegal or, or ethically or morally wrong. Uh, it just uh, had it was time to part ways with law enforcement. Uh, both I and the agency I worked for uh, both felt that was a good idea. And it was because of what I know now is traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. About seven or eight years into my career, I responded to, uh, you know, what I thought was just another wreck, uh, but it turned into one that was very graphic. Um, I actually, unfortunately, was there as a person passed away, and that wasn't the only time that I dealt with that. That's something that law enforcement, EMS, uh, public safety, fire dispatchers deal with on, on a regular basis. But for some reason, that one, for lack of a better term, that one got me. Uh, that was one that I had no idea was going to change my course. Uh, what I noticed was I, I went home that night. I did the investigation. I went home that night. I took off my uniform. I, you know, uh, told my wife about my day. And the next day I got up and put my uniform on and went back to work, just like any other wreck I'd worked or any other day that I'd worked. Uh, what I didn't see and, and really didn't even see until uh, looking back on it was that uh, these changes that I was rapidly making both in my career and my personal life. And I had gone, now looking back, I had gone from, you know, really what I would have considered a, a, an outstanding officer. I was getting, I have two awards for bravery in the line of duty. I was getting awards for uh, a large amount of felony arrests. Uh, I was really what I considered kind of a road dog. I, I was the guy that wanted to get out there and get in the middle of things and uh, uh, clean up the community. That, that was me. I loved my job. I went from that to somebody that was being written up uh, and disciplined on a regular basis. I started having a lot of problems with the administration. I started having a lot of problems at home, exhibiting a lot of anger. Uh, I was no longer the guy that that felt like I was leaving it at the door when I came home. And, and I, I think anybody that's dedicated their job would have trouble saying that, that they leave it at the door. But I was definitely doing a better job before. And it was beginning to affect my family. It was beginning to affect my relationship. I had two, I just had two young girls at the time about this time period where, where things were getting rough, two daughters. Um, you know, my, my reactions to them uh, were not what I would consider the best parenting, certainly nothing unethical or, or criminal, but things I could have handled better. And so I'd gone from that, that transition of, of, you know, six or seven years of being a great employee to at the end, uh, being somebody that I would not have wanted to work, uh, or not, would not want to supervise <laughs> anyway. Uh, so I knew that, it, that at the end, that, that something was wrong. I, I had reached out for help. Uh, there wasn't a lot of help that I could find. In fact, the first, uh, therapist that was recommended to me to kind of deal with this, uh, a really nice lady, but she, she actually cried the whole time that I, that I was telling her about this car wreck. Uh, so it was not helpful for me. You know, I thought, oh my gosh, I really am crazy. And, you know, there, there is some, there is something wrong with me. If I, if I make this therapist crime, I went and saw another individual and, and I think he's a great therapist. Matter of fact, I still refer people to him today, but he just didn't understand me. Uh, he didn't work with public safety and uh, I, I think he was good at his job, but um, he just, he didn't understand me and what I was going through. So it became this mission of, to answer your question about how my own experience led into this, 
it became this mission of, well, if nobody else can figure it out, well, then I will, just like law enforcement. If nobody else was going to stop this, then I'm going to stop this. So uh, that's when I put myself back in school and uh, had this mission of at least figuring out a way to help. And it turned into this uh, career now where this is what I do on a daily basis. So when you, uh, this, this event that happened, how long into your career, would you, was it eight years? About seven or eight years. Yeah. Okay. So immediately following that you started experiencing some of this trouble or was it just, it was something that built up? It was definitely a build. Uh, there was no on off switch. I can definitely look back and see that that was the point because what it did to me was not necessarily, oh gosh, I've seen something difficult and I don't know how to process it. Uh, that That is a problem with PTSD, but that's not what I was thinking. Uh, you know, to me, everybody else was a problem. Uh, the supervisors that I used to look up to uh, were now horrible people to me and they didn't change. I changed. Uh, my wife was no longer understanding me. She didn't change. I changed. Uh, my kids were you know, doing things to purposefully upset me. No, they didn't. I changed. You know, I was becoming hypervigilant and, and too excitable and irritable and had, uh, you know, difficulty sitting still. It, so it, it wasn't an overnight switch. It was definitely a buildup of, uh, I would say, about those seven years. It just culminated uh, at its worst uh, about seven years later. So those me, me being non-trained in therapy and stuff of that nature, that stuff that you just mentioned sounds like symptoms to me. Is that, are, are those symptoms of PTSD? These things that you just mentioned, the, the way you were handling yourself with those that are around you? They are. And it's a great question because uh, there are, of course, PTSD being a disorder, there is a diagnostic value to symptoms you have to have for that specific diagnosis. And what I mean by that is, is what I call the official the official symptoms. So you have to have a traumatic event. There has to be some kind of intrusion symptoms, you know, where it be, whether it be recalling or involuntary intrusive memories, uh, nightmares, there has to be some kind of avoidance of the stimuli. So uh, an example of that would be someplace you can't go anymore because of the reminder and, and not somewhere that you drive by and it upsets you a little bit, but truly of having to avoid reminders or avoid a location. Uh, you have to have some kind of negative alterations in your cognition or mood, you know, that you're much more irritable, that you're having concentration problems, uh, that you're having diminished interest in things that you used to like, feelings of detachment from others. Uh, you also have to have an alteration to your arousal. So irritable behavior, reckless behavior, hypervigilance, and they have to be going on for, for more than a month after the incident. So those are what I call the big five. Those are the things that you have to meet for a diagnosis in the clinical world of PTSD. Now, um, you know, you said, what are those symptoms that I was talking about? I call those the real symptoms. One of the things I get to do is, is go and talk to public safety agencies about this. And what I tell them, I, I, I call that talk the real symptoms of PTSD because nobody comes in my office and says, you know, I've witnessed an event. I'm having some arousal problems. I'm having uh, some intrusion symptoms, negative alterations, um, some reactivity. Can you clarify for me, Trevor, what, what do you mean by the alterations? So, so alterations just being in itself change. So, okay. you know, marked alterations and arousal. Now you're more irritable. Now you have more angry outbursts. Now you oh, have more reckless behavior. So it's a change, uh, in, in the, in the things that you're doing, a change in your personality a change the way that you react to things. So, but in this, in this real symptoms, uh, nobody comes in and says those things. Uh, um, you know, I've had therapists come in and not use those terms, but what they come in and tell me is I, I'm hypervigilant. Uh, my family's falling apart. I'm drinking too much. My marriage is falling apart. I'm getting written up at work all the time. They've disciplined me for the third time this month. Uh, my wife has moved out. The, those changes, the things that it is impacting your, your life, those are what I call the real symptoms. That's what people come in and tell me is going on in their life. Uh, they're angry at work now. They can't stand the public. Uh, they can't stand their supervisors. Uh, it's always the supervisor's problem. Nothing ever goes right. It's, those are the real signs to me um, that I talk about when I go out because th those are the ones that come in the door. Um, you know, One of the interesting things about the symptoms, uh, those big five I talked about, is, is I think you could take any public safety member uh, who's done this job for six months 
and you could fit them in those categories. Uh, they all see critical incidences. They might have some type of reminders. They might have some type of avoidance of those reminders. They may be a little more hypervigilant because of things they've seen. So you could take any public safety member and, and probably find the five actual symptoms of the diagnosis for PTSD. Here's the difference is what is it doing to your life? How is it intruding to the kind of person you are? How is it intruding into your family? You know, what is it doing that's intrusive to your life is what I'm really looking for. That's exactly what I was sitting here thinking while you were talking is that I know a lot of first responders. We've trained a bunch of them and everyone that I know well enough to know some of the work that they have to deal with, they, they all ex- they all have those same experiences. I mean, that's the job. I mean, that's just part of it. It's just, does it affect them? Is it, is it affecting those around them as well? I guess is a big thing. So, I mean, for those of us that might have family or, you know, we're friends with, I mean, like me, I'm for, I don't have, well, I do have somebody in, in my direct family that's part of this sort of work, but what can we do for someone that's exhibiting these types of symptoms? What kind of things can we do to help? Sure. It's a great question when I get off. And, and what I tell people is, even though this may sound completely counterintuitive because I am a therapist, I don't think everybody necessarily needs professional help. Uh, the first line of defense to me, when somebody's exhibiting these symptoms or when somebody is dealing with a critical incident and having difficulty with it is peers. Um, the actual first step when we, we know there's a critical incident is we typically send a peer team in, um, which is another officers or if they're EMS fellow medics or fellow firefighters, um, fellow dispatchers to diffuse what we call diffuse the situation or do a, a diffusing. So we want to have those members kind of talk their way through what just happened and what they're feeling. And it does, it does two big things. There's a, there's a lot of science behind it, but here's the two big things that I think that helps with. One, um, we think out loud. Um, when I was a new therapist, I remember clients would come in and they would talk for like 45, 50 minutes. I would say two words and they'd stand up and say, thanks, man, I feel much better and leave. And I would think I didn't really do anything. Uh, we, we actually call it imposter syndrome. Uh, I'm worried that I'm an imposter therapist uh, that we're, and they're going to see through it. You know, they're going to see through me and uh, they're going to find out I don't know what I'm doing. So I, I had reached out to some uh, fellow therapists that I look up to and they said, no, uh, we think out loud. You know, when, sometimes you can sit at home and think this stuff all day and you go talk to a peer or you go talk to a therapist and you say these things makes a lot more sense. So, so that's one of the ideas of kind of the diffusing and also kind of one of the ideas of reaching out to peers is sometimes you just got to say this stuff. It's not necessarily uh, getting it out there, getting it off your chest. Like a lot of people think we just kind of think out loud when we hear ourselves say something. Uh, the other thing that I think that does both in the, in any kind of formal diffusing or just reaching out to your peers. The other thing that that does is let you know, you know what, there's other people out there that are feeling the same way that I'm not crazy, that I don't like this. I don't like what happened. I don't like this feeling. I don't like the anger that I have right now, but there's somebody sitting across from me that has the exact same feeling. So at least I know I'm not crazy. So, so step one to me is peers. I don't think you have to always find a therapist. I don't think you always have to find a professional. Now, if that wasn't enough, or if uh, you try that or don't have that available, there are, there are therapists like me out there. Uh, those of us with public safety experience are few and far between. We're kind of a network. Uh, most of us know each other, but we are out there. Now, I will say, in addition to that, I don't think that, that, you, that your therapist has to have public safety experience to be good at what they do or be able to help you. What I get from that is what I call borrowed credit. People don't have to come into my office and tell me what it's like to go to a fatal wreck. I don't know your fatal wreck. I don't know the one that's bothering you but I do know what those look like. I know what it's like to go to those overdoses. I know what it's like to go to those injured or hurt or killed children. I know what it's like to go to those domestics day after day. So I get what I call borrowed credit. And, and I certainly don't take it lightly uh, because of that, but you don't have to come in and explain to those of us that have had public safety experience what you're dealing with. Now, again, I don't think that that is an absolute have to, that, that your therapists have public safety experience, but it does make the conversation easier sometimes. And even if you don't have that available, 
find somebody that specializes in trauma in your area and get some help. This is what we do. So in that situation, and maybe this goes too deep and we don't need to dig into this, but if you're, if you're helping someone, like, let's say for me, for example, like I know, like I, I know one person in particular that, that just listening to you has issues like you're describing. And if I were to try to help him, can I just listen to him talk about those things? Should I go to him and say, Hey, talk to your brothers about this, you know, or just straight up go, Hey, you need to get some counseling. I mean, how should we handle that from your perspective? Sure. Sure. No, I think it's a great uh, thing to talk about. And I think the first thing you said of being willing to listen uh, can be huge. Uh, It could be a huge first step because like I said, sometimes you think out loud, you know, I may be sitting on my couch thinking, of how I'm going to handle this and I can't come to a solution. But how many times have you gone and talked to your best friend about, you know, something difficult and all they said was, yeah, I understand. I hope everything's okay. And you stand up and feel better. You know, it just sometimes getting that stuff out is, uh, it, it is helpful, you know, kind of helps you work through it. So no, I think, I think listening is great. I don't think you have to be a public safety member for that. I don't, I don't think you have to be a family member. If they're willing to talk, let them talk it out. Um, yeah, the caveat I guess I would give is for those that are, are not aware of what truly goes on in public safety, you may hear some things that are rough to hear uh, because it's normalized to us. You know, I, I, I say fatal wrecks because I was a, 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 a primary traffic unit for a lot of my my career. Uh, I worked mostly in, in a traffic type division. So uh, th- I went to those all the time. So that is a normal thing to me. It's not a good thing. I don't like it for the families. I hate it that that happened, but it's a normal everyday thing for me. So you may hear some things that are tough to hear, but them them getting that out is great. You know, if that doesn't work, then, you know, why not suggest uh, a next level care? Maybe they, like you said, they go talk to their brothers and sisters in public safety about it. Maybe they can, uh, you know, listen to a podcast such as this or or do some research on their own about what this stuff is like. Go to a conference about PTSD. Even if they're not sure they have PTSD, go learn about it. Listen to these uh, podcasts like this so, so it, you can understand at least whether you truly need to get help or not. So I, I think it's a great question and, and a, great, uh, a great step to be willing to listen. Well, another reason I ask, and, and I'm asking this for myself because I'm kind of greedy on that, but because I've got you here, and but I'm just assuming there's other people that are listening that are like me, but there's... I've been grappling for years and again, everybody, I think I told everybody that's how Trevor and I met, but there's been for the longest time, Trevor, and you understand that both sides of this coin too, you know, you go in there and beat the crap out of one another, particularly with judo grappling or something like that. Um, and I've done that with a lot of law enforcement in particular. And then there's that downtime at the end of the, at the end of the session, at the training session or whatever it might be where we all just sit around talking. That's where I've got a lot of this stuff where guys start talking about something they did last night at work or, you know, something they saw last week. And I've always just tried to listen and I've tried to not be shocked. Just is that, I mean, cause I don't want to, I mean, I've always felt like they were trying to see, are they okay? And I just didn't want them to think that they're crazy or something for lack of a better way of saying oh, it. Yeah, me. it's huge. And in fact, I'll tell you another way that I that that I know that this works well. There, there are um, individual programs out there that will um, take wounded officers and take them uh, to a major hunting trip or a major fishing trip. Now, that sounds like a really cool thing to do for an injured officer, and it is. Somebody that's given, you know, a part of themselves or – uh, is, in, is in a really rough place. You know, hey, you, you've worked hard. Let's give you something to go do. Uh, let, let's go hunting. Let's go fishing. Uh, let's go backpacking. Um, but uh, if if the people going to that haven't figured, out, figured it out yet, they'll figure it out by the end of the trip that that was a small piece of why you went. There may not be a, a focus and a leadership-led conversation but I bet you a steak dinner, you sit there with your fishing pole and talk about what's going on. You know, and, and it's the same thing, you know, that people come back from that kind of stuff so healed. Um, conferences, you know, uh, public safety members will go to conferences and the best thing they get is, is actually uh, hanging out at the fire pit, you know, at the hotel, 
um, taught, trained stories and realizing, okay, well, you know what? At least other, I, I don't feel good yet that at least other people have the same thought. And, and like you said, you know, you have a physical activity, you're drained, you're, you're kind of emotional or, or at least vulnerable. And you're willing to have those conversations with, with somebody like you of that may start out with, Hey, uh, listen, to this crazy thing that happened to me yesterday. And it very mel very well may be, uh, I just want to see if you think I'm crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a right. great thing. Yeah, they, I did uh, Nature Alliance School too. We, uh, I, I was in a pro- involved with a program where I helped uh, wounded warrior military folks, and I took them out deer hunting and uh, with another another nonprofit outside of us. But uh, I'm just telling you, man, sitting in that deer stand that that's that's a good place to be for such things as you're as you're stating. So that's good stuff. Hey, let, let me get back. I'm sorry. I, I kind of went off on a tangent there on my greedy. I want to know for me kind of tangent. Let's get back. Let's let me get back to some of these questions so that I can make sure I help all the, everybody else listening to. So you, you mentioned this one incident for you uh, that was perhaps a catalyst for a lot of these things. What, what causes one incident to cause PTSD over an, another difficult or another critical incident? Sure. It's a good question. And it's one that I wish we had the complete total answer to. And and here's why. If I knew exactly what was going to cause you, Craig, to uh, have some kind of traumatic stress that was going to stick with you, uh, one, I would call you and say, don't go to this tomorrow because it, that's your day to see something really rough. Um, now, the downside to that is as stubborn as we public safety people are, you'd go anyway. You'd still go because you're not really sure you believe me that I called sounding like I'm from the future and telling you that it's it, this is going to be the one that gets you or the one or two things that get you. And besides, you're tough and you're going to go anyway. That's what we do. So uh, we don't always know what event. Now, we do know some things that make people susceptible to having difficulty with traumatic stress. One of those things is adver- adverse childhood events. So... Um, in no way does having trauma in your childhood absolutely mean you're going to have PTSD, nor does it mean that you're definitely going to get it from a later trauma. Uh, but one thing we know because of what the limbic system does after trauma is that it is susceptible to dealing with traumatic events in a very on and off way. So what I mean by all that is we, we don't know what yours is going to be. Um, we don't even necessarily know perfectly if you're susceptible to PTSD because of early trauma. The only thing we know is afterwards, it's your limbic system that causes the problem, your, your fight or flight. Uh, and if you think of it this way, and this may be, may be going uh, too technical, but I think it's so handy to understand this when you're dealing with these symptoms, uh, that, that limbic system is an on-off switch. You know, it's the amygdala hippocampus, a couple other things. And, and you've heard it called the, the fight, flight, or freeze or fight or flight. Right. Uh, yeah. We talk about survival all the time. Yeah. yeah it, it doesn't care about yesterday. It doesn't care about tomorrow. It cares about right now. And the only thing that it knows how to do is, for lack of a better term, panic. Right? The only thing it knows how to do is to put you in a fight, flight, or freeze mode. Well, that's what happens with traumatic stress. Um, for some reason, this trauma has put you in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And if you think of it in the manner of what happens after a trauma when it becomes things like whether it be acute stress or just adjustment disorder or PTSD or just dealing with the trauma, you think of all those things like hypervigilance, easy to agitate, difficulty going by a certain location, that's your limbic system freaking out. Uh, The reason we know this is we took a bunch of – 18 year olds, they joined the military. We scanned their brain. Uh, they went to combat for a year, came back. We scanned the brain again. And you've seen in the brain that the, the color looking scans that show up. Well, that tells us something about the blood flow in the brain. And what, what we found out was uh, you go through that kind of trauma. Now, all of your decisions are being made in the limbic system. So everything is an emergency. Well, that's really handy for, for cover and concealment. Not so handy when you're trying to figure out where to go for dinner. So if you think of it in that context of what happens after the traumatic stress, the hypervigilance, the quick to agitate, the distrusting of people, the difficulty in concentrating, 
that's what happens when your limbic system is in emergency mode. So although I got a little bit away from, you know, which incident it is, that that's what happens after the incident. That's what happened after my incident. I became very hypervigilant. My, my limbic system was on fire and it was making things into emergencies that were not emergencies. And, and here's one last thing to, to think about with it is, is, is what does your limbic system do when it's really needed? When we need the limbic system to be in fight, flight, or freeze mode, it speeds up our heart so we get more blood to our system. We breathe faster so we get more oxygen. It heats up the body so it doesn't tear our tendons and ligaments. When we fight, we get an adrenaline dump so we're stronger, and it makes our senses uh, even more in tune. It dries out our mouth. It does that because it turns off our digestive system because as it turns out, it's not so handy to have to go to the bathroom in the middle of a fight. So it just turns it off. So um, that's what we need it to do in an emergency. What happens when you're having a panic attack or you're having hypervigilance or you're quick to agitate? Your heart's racing, you're breathing fast, you're sweating for no reason, your mouth is dry, you feel like you have tunnel vision or you're about to pass out, uh, your body's shaking from the adrenaline dump. So the thing is, you're having a normal stress reaction. You're just having it at the wrong time. So tie that back into what makes one incident over another cause something like PTSD or some kind of traumatic stress symptom. It's that. It's the limbic system. You went to 100 fatal wrecks and your limbic system wasn't too worried about it. And you went to number 101 and something about this made it an emergency. Whether it was, it wasn't uh, concluded in your mind. It, it's a million things it could be, but but that's that's what it is. It's your limbic system. And when that limbic system decides this isn't a traumatic emergency and I either did or didn't respond accordingly, now I'm in emergency mode. Right. So is there any medication to help soothe this out or is that a, not a good idea? So I think medication is important. Now, I do have to caveat. I, I uh, My doctorate's in counseling and not in medicine, so I don't prescribe medication. I can't really give medical advice per se, but I can tell you what I see in my office. And what I see medication help with is if you're going from zero to 10 all the time, that's exhausting. You know, if you're up and down all the time, whether it be agitation, depression, anxiety, remorse, if you're going from zero to 10 all the time, uh, it's it's even difficult for some of us to get in there and, and help help you out with the root cause because you're just all over the place. Uh, what medication does for the folks that take it and come to my office is I see them not go to zero to 10 quite so fast. Now, you'll still get to 10. It doesn't make happy things uh, bad. It doesn't think bad things good. It doesn't necessarily numb your emotions. It just slows down some of that response. Um, and so that we can get in there and we can get in and find out the root cause uh, or at least give you some other ways to uh, deal with that. Gotcha. So how do you, I mean, you uh, as in your line of counseling, how do you specifically treat PTSD or any sort of traumatic stress? Is that something? That sure. So there's a, yeah, there's a, it's a great question. There's a couple of things I use and not to be too technical about them, but uh, the first is, is one of the leading therapy theories for PTSD. And that's, uh, you'll hear it referred to as EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Now, when you hear things like eye movement and desensitization and reprocessing, they sound like voodoo medicine, like we're going to hypnotize you and everything's going to be better. Uh, what EMDR does is help you process difficult memories. Now, an important thing to know about that is it's not exposure therapy. You're not going to come into my office and you start at the beginning of the story and you cry and snot and punch my couch until you get to the end of it with every detail. Uh, that actually just re-traumatizes you. So exposure therapy is not a go-to for me. Uh, we use things like EMDR, which my interest in doing that is how is it affecting you now? Because what you'll find, uh, and this ties a little bit back to uh, some tech technical parts of, of one incident over another for PTSD is there's always a negative cognition in there uh, when that PTSD sticks around. So what I mean by negative cognition is I didn't do well. I'm not safe. I'm not in control. I should have done better. There's typically a negative cognition there, keeping that memory from processing like it should and kind of keeping it as a square peg going into a round hole. Uh, what I think of is I, I see the brain as a uh, giant file cabinet. When you were when you were 16, 
they're about you learn to drive a car and how to change a flat tire. We don't drive down the interstate thinking, this is what I do if I get a flat. This is what I do if I get a flat. Uh, you went to sleep that night. Your brain looked in the file cabinet of where to put that and put it in the auto repair drawer. And when you need it, you pull it out. Well, what drawer do you put trauma in? Uh, there's there's no drawer for that. There's no drawer for some of the things you see. So it kind of gets stuck in what I call purgatory. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've got kids. I know you do. And if one of my kids falls and scrapes their knee on the concrete, um, it's, a, it's a raw nerve. I, I don't have to touch her scraped knee to make it hurt. I can like blow air in its general direction and it hurts because it's a raw nerve. Well, now you've got this memory stuck in purgatory. It's a raw nerve. So anything that reminds the limbic system about that just blew air in the general direction of that trauma. So what EMDR does is help you finally put that away, put it in a drawer. Uh, that sounds that sounds very mystic, uh, but it's something that I've watched amazing things happen with, and it's about 90% of my day. Now, real quickly, the other thing I use to finish that question is uh, rational motor behavior therapy. Sometimes uh, the things that we're dealing with, our most extreme emotions are because of irrational thinking. Now, irrational doesn't mean dumb or stupid or made up or weak. It just means not rational. So there are some things that we deal with that probably don't have a lot of evidence as to the way we're having this crazy emotional response. So uh, rational motive behavior therapy and uh, EMDR is what I use in my office. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. So we've talked about basically getting to your part on this timeline of events. Is there a way that we can basically lessen or even prevent PTSD from forming right after somebody has a critical event, even though they might not think it's going to be a critical event to them? Uh, because maybe they've seen them before. What can you say to them to help keep that from forming? Yeah, the big thing is going back to what I was talking about earlier of those diffusings and debriefings. Uh, you know, I don't think they solve all the problems of PTSD, certainly, or dealing with traumatic stress. However, uh, you know, going back to that model of, of being able to think out loud sometimes is a is a game changer, in my opinion, and, and as well as knowing that somebody else is dealing with this, that this is a difficult scene we deal with and, and, and I don't feel good about this. And whether it's three hours or three years later, um, normalizing those responses, you certainly don't want to keep those very limbic system vigilant responses going, but knowing that, uh, somebody else is dealing with this. This is a, again, a normal response, just having it at the wrong time. You, you don't need to respond three years later, like you did at the critical incident. Um, so that kind of diffusing now, whether it's done formally through like a response team, uh, for a critical incident or whether it's done peer to peer, uh, within a, a smaller agency or whether it's done, uh, with a professional, uh, I truly believe that sometimes after the event, after the critical part is done, being able to not normalize the critical event because public safety responds to things that will never be normalized. You, you can't unsee the things you see. They're difficult. But normalizing your response to it and normalizing that it's okay, that you're not doing really well with this, that that was a horrible thing we saw, um, I, I think that's a game changer. I, I don't know necessarily of the statistics or if it's been studied as to whether or not formal debriefings or defusings definitely help with later trauma. Uh, I, I would think you could find that pretty easily. But uh, in my opinion, that can be a game changer. Now, you can have those things and still deal with traumatic stress symptoms later. But but I think getting getting the ball rolling in the beginning uh, with those those kind of, whether it be formal or informal talks, is huge. Uh, that That's what I would always recommend after a critical event. Sounds like to me that a good shift sergeant is going to be invaluable in a situation like this. It could this. be a game changer. Yeah, an absolute game changer. Yeah, and like I said, because it could be your shift, your shift sergeant uh, checking on you, and that's the conversation and letting you know. Um, and, and I had those. You know, I had I had good supervisors that, that said, yep, uh, that was a tough one, and you're right, and here's how I kind of deal with it. And I'm, and I'm not real familiar with the hierarchy of – command structure within EMS services, but I'm assuming the person you're riding the buggy with can be that other person that you could talk to. And, and cause one of them is going to have more experience than the other, I'm assuming. And 
can share such things right after a critical event because they're seeing that stuff all the time as well. Yeah, and, and like I said, even if it is or is not that formal structure, uh, you, you're exactly you know it could be a peer that this this even this is their first critical incident, but just being able to oh well you are uh, very hypervigilant this week too, or you went home and cried and you weren't willing to tell somebody else that because that's not what we do, or this is bothering you and you've been thinking about it. Uh, just, just any kind of peer interaction like that initially, I, I, I think it's a game changer. I really do. So a minute ago, you mentioned basically normal reactions. So what could you set us up a picture of what you see as being the, what would be the normal reaction after a, a traumatic event? How that, what's that look like? Sure. And it's a great question because uh, what will happen sometimes is, uh, you know, I'll have somebody contact me and tell me that they, they just had a critical event. And for a couple of days, they had no appetite. They couldn't eat well. They were stressed out. They didn't sleep well. Maybe they had some nightmares or dreams. They felt themselves a little hypervigilant. But about day three, day four, they kind of got back to routine. And even though they're still not happy about the incident, they're they're still a little stressed and thinking about it. But things are things seem to be back to whatever normal is. Um, I, I am glad to tell those people, oh, well, that's an acute stress response. You know, that's when when you have a critical event that feels life changing and those things happen for a couple of days. I don't think there's anything wrong with you at all. I, I think that's what your body does. Uh, you know, you get into a long drawn out fight and your body feels like it's going to shut down on you. Um, that's your body recovering. Uh, I think it's the same thing mentally. Sometimes it takes a couple of days to get back on track. So I don't know that that the list of symptoms would be short enough to list. But what I would say is if you're having an uh, unusual reaction to a critical event or what you deem is, is unusual, you know, we've already talked about it being a normal reaction limbic system wise, what you feel like is a game changer. But about, you know, a day or two later, you're kind of getting back into the routine and things seem okay. I'd call that a normal response. One of the things that I, I think anybody can can compare this to is uh, loss of a family member. You know, if you get that phone call and you've lost a family member you're close to, you're devastated for a couple of days. And, and, and I don't want to necessarily compare that to traumatic stress, but I think this is this is the analogy I would use Um for, for understanding traumatic stress, you, you lose that family member and you're devastated for a while. You miss them. Uh, it, it's horrible. But, you know, as three and six months go by, uh, you get back into your routine and you still miss them and you still wish you could talk to them and ask them advice and hear their stories. But you're OK. I'm OK. I miss them, but I'm OK. That, that's what I think the recovery from acute stress looks like after a critical event that, you know, this bad thing happened. I still don't like it. It still makes me a little nervous. Maybe I don't want to drive by there and think about it, but I'm okay. That That's what I would say is a, is a normal response after a traumatic event. I think, and maybe it's said too casually, but I've heard comments like this where, where somebody in this type of profession goes, hey, if I'm not having some sort of odd feelings around, there might be something wrong with me then because you've seen so much and it just doesn't affect you anymore. Is that, is there truth to that? Or, I mean, I'm kind of throwing your curveball there, but no, no, that's fine. It's actually a great thing to bring up because, because I've had that question before I've been contacted and asked like, you know, uh, my agency is, is sending me for, you know, some kind of evaluation or, or just to talk to somebody because we did have this major event and, you know, they just want to, I haven't, I haven't done anything, but they just want to check up on all of us. And, you know, they'll tell you like, actually, I, I don't, I'm not that stressed out about this. I don't like it. Uh, I hate that it happened. I hate it for the family. I hate it for any victims, but, but I'm okay. That's what I'm worried about is wrong is that I'm okay. Um, so any, I won't say any, but I would say a majority of psychologists that listen to what I'm about to say would probably throw a book at me. But, uh, you know, they will tell you that compartmentalization is a terrible way to handle things. And I will tell you, compartmentalization is an absolute necessity in public safety. Uh, you do not have the luxury 
to stop at one call. Uh, you have to, you have a critical event, whether it be one that you've seen before or not, you've got to go to the next one, whether it be the next hour, the next day, uh, we're going. That's what we signed up for. That's what we do. So the problem with that, of course, uh, there are some downsides. If, if your bucket gets too full, uh, it may tip over. So it's something worth watching out for. But uh, to answer that question of, am I messed up that I don't uh, have great emotion about this? No, no, that, that's, what, that's actually what you signed up for. You know, you, you felt like you were the one that could respond to these things and, and be okay. Um, one of my most favorite things about law enforcement was, uh, you know, showing up to chaos and kind of being the calm in the storm and not in a way of look at me, I'm the leader here, but showing up to these chaotic scenes and just telling people, Hey, we got this, we, we got this. That, that, that was one of my favorite things that, 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 you know, had I been that person in chaos that I could look over and see, Oh, there's somebody here to take care of this. You know, we're, we're okay. So, uh, that's, that's what you do. That that's what I signed up for. I wanted to be the calm and the chaos. So that type of compartmentalization or, you know, putting it in your bucket or not having an extreme emotional reaction, I, I, I think is, is perfectly fine. Otherwise you're going to work about one day in public safety and never go back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you mentioned earlier that there's just a small network of folks such as yourself that do focus counseling on first responders. Does that also mean that there's just not a lot available from agencies themselves to help treat officers or those that are dealing with traumatic stress or do agencies have something in place typically or, or not at all? How does that usually work? Yeah, it's a, it's a very mixed bag. And I think you see it in different ways in different parts of the country. I think you see it in different ways in different agency sizes. Um, you know, some agencies in my area uh, send people for an annual evaluation uh, just to check on their men and women in public safety. And we can, you know, if we talk about critical events, we talk about critical events. If we talk about their favorite way to de-stress is fishing, that's what we talk about. So uh, just a checkup. And on that note, it also sets them up really well that should they have a critical incident, you know, and somebody says, hey, you got to go talk to Trevor. They either know I liked talking to that guy or I didn't find me somebody else. So, uh, so, so there's one, one way it's done. Uh, another way it's done is, you know, to have in-house uh, peer teams. And now I think you'll find that uh, in your larger agencies just because of manpower issues and the training it takes to do that. There are some community resources uh, in different states uh, that can respond and can do defusings and debriefings for critical incidents, uh, including uh, law enforcement assistance programs uh, that, that really help the smaller agencies that may not be able uh, to have those resources. Some agencies actually have a therapist uh, on staff, uh, Louisville Metro here in Kentucky, uh, somebody I highly respect, Dr. Michael Faville is their psychologist and they can call him day or night and he will help them with what they need. And that's, that's really neat. I, I will say that, that on the opposite end of that, my PhD dissertation, uh, part of it included, um, finding out about availabilities of mental health services at agencies. Um, I, I use that to kind of uh, measure different types of stress within law enforcement. But I was honestly blown away by how many people, uh, I had 4,000 data points in the survey and how many people had to put no help available. Uh, I, I was disappointed. Yeah, I was, I was, I was quite disappointed. Now there were some that, that had, uh, absolutely we have help, but, uh, it was, uh, well within the hundreds of, uh, we don't have anything. Wow. And that's one of the reasons <laughs> in all seriousness. I mean, I can sense that I didn't know that obviously from a statistical standpoint, but, uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on. Um, next question for you. What other types of stress do law enforcement officers have and deal with that might impact PTSD? So that's, that's a great question. Uh, not, not only because there are other forms, uh, but because, uh, my dissertation that I had just talked about was uh, finding out that exact information. So uh, what I'd looked at was 
that there were ways to measure operational stress and organizational stress, operational being night shift, handcuffing, placing charges, going to court, the physical things that you do in law enforcement versus operational, which is my administration drives me crazy. I don't trust them. We don't have the training we need. We don't have the equipment we need, the organizational things. And uh, there were measures out there for to find out those levels. What I wanted to know is what happens over a 20, 30, 40 year career that changes about those because, uh, you know, here's something that, that, that most people don't know. Uh, the average years of service for law enforcement suicide is 20 years, not three, not five, not five years after seeing difficult things, 20 years you're nearing or at retirement. And that is the number one, uh, years of service for suicide of police officers, which, um, you know, the, the number, we never know the exact number, but one thing we do know for a fact is there's more police suicides than police officers killed in the line of duty every year. Happens every single year. Uh, and in fact, I think the number of suicides is much higher than what we know because there's no uh, specific database for that. It's kind of self-reported by family members and agencies. But uh, so, so you have those two types of stress, operational and organizational what I wanted to find out was why is it so bad at 20 years and which one is it? Well, just as I had suspected, operational stress as you go through your career goes down. And I think you find that in, if you work at a factory, the operational stress goes down. You've been doing that job. You know how to do that job. You're not really worried about how to do it with the exception. Uh, organizational stress continued to skyrocket. In fact, it went up by a factor of 1.8 uh, out of a 120 point scale for every year you remain in law enforcement. So oh it, it is gosh. going up faster than your years of service. In other words, a- almost twice as fast. So um, that is another, I say all that to say that is another type of stress that absolutely can add. Maybe, it, maybe or not, it is directly related to your PTSD and your limbic system response but if your level of stress is so high and you're already there, how can that not contribute to your reactions to traumatic events? So organizational stress is, is, is one of those other types of stress that, that impact traumatic stress. Well, the, I guess, and maybe this, we're almost up on our time. So this might be our last question. We, unless you have something else, but you know, it seems like to me and just from social media, and the media at large is that the divide between a community and law enforcement is just continuing to get bigger and grow. Is is there a way that we as community members, family members of people that are in law enforcement, EMS services, fire commission, you know, these types of hardcore first responder jobs, is there a way that we can help them, you know, even on a daily basis, what kind of, what kind of things can we do to assist people like that? Sure. It's a great question that I, that I think people want the answer to, but don't know where to look for that answer. You know, if you're not somebody who has a family member in public safety, uh, you can't just call the police department and ask, how can you, how can you help? Cause they're busy. You know, they've, they, they've got things going on. They, 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 there are definitely great programs out there to support police, things like citizens, police academies and, and, and different uh, agencies have done well with that stuff. But uh, you're right. I, I do believe that the, the divide is getting wider. Now I, I say that with, with the caveat of, I think public safety people are still doing public safety things, you know, no matter the divide, they're still going out there and getting it done. Uh, and, and I, that divide, I, I know that there's lots of studies going on right now to kind of measure the changes over the last five or 10 years of public safety. But, you know, I, I lived that life and I can tell you that I, that I felt a divide, uh, over the last, you know, five, six, seven years uh, of my career. But although it's difficult to maintain not getting cynical about this, I, I knew early in my career that, that, you know, 90% of people in this world are probably good people. They just want to go to work. They just want to go home. They want to be left alone. They don't want people stealing from them or robbing them or, you know, assaulting them. They just want to go home and watch their favorite show and raise their family and be left alone. 10% of people are the bad guys. The problem is when you're in public safety, 
you see that 10%, 90% of the time. So there's your cynicism. There's your frustration. There's your quick temper. Um, you know, who, who wouldn't have responses to that kind of stress and, and just dealing with that um, all day long. So what I tell people that, that want to in some way impact the mental health of law enforcement or public safety as a whole is um, let them know that you appreciate them. You know, um, when it comes to the overall stress, let public safety know you appreciate them. You'd be amazed uh, how far it goes when, when somebody would just say, Hey, you know, thanks. Thanks for what you're doing. And and they don't have to be cheesy about it. You know, just say, thanks for, thanks for what you do. My granted, she, you know, she's eight, but my daughter loves to run up to police because she knows what her dad used to do and say, she just says, thank you for protecting us and walks away. And I don't know what an eight-year-old impact has on a, you know, 40-year-old, 20-year law enforcement officer, but uh, you don't get to hear that very often. All you do is go home uh, or you do your shift where you uh, get treated poorly by the public and then you go home and you watch TV and see how much people hate us. So uh, there is a, there, I think th- there is a divide that, that's growing. I, I hope there's a pendulum shift uh, before too much longer. But, you know, uh, in the area of stress in general, that, that, that is, although kind of cheesy sounding, is just being, a, you know, using your voice to say thanks. Uh, it's huge. Now, on the on the trauma side, in my kind of world of how can you help, it's it is what you talked about earlier of being there to listen. First of all, understanding that they see things different than you do. If you're not in public safety, now you may have some type of job that exposes you to a lot of those things. You know, uh, we talk about public safety and everybody thinks fire, EMS, uh, police, but uh, you know, there's a lot more groups in there, military. Uh, emergency room nurses, emergency room physicians. Uh, there, there's a whole group of people that deal with traumatic incidences uh, that uh, dispatchers that, that I say, well, you know, aren't left out, but it's just not that first big sign you think of. So being willing to be a, a, a voice to them and a voice for them or, or a listening ear. And I think uh, being willing to say, Hey, uh, I, I noticed you've been struggling lately, you know, uh, my family member that's in public safety. I, I heard this podcast though, that really talked about what you said you've been going through, or I've, I've read this article or I've gone to this talk or I've seen this video, um, you know, of things that, uh, that, that, that you're talking about. Uh, one, one of my additional responsibilities, and, and I, I don't want to, uh, sound like a plug, but, uh, one of the additional things I do, well, in addition to my, to my pri- private practice, I'm the clinical mental health director for a group called the wounded blue and wounded blue is a national nonprofit based out of Las Vegas, uh, for wounded officers. One of the things that we're starting to do well in public safety is take care of those that are, that are, um, killed in the line of duty. You know, we, where we don't have it perfect yet, but we, we do a good job. We make sure that they get the correct burial, that their family in some way is taken care of for a lot of places. We continue to fail daily for wounded officers. So we actually just uh, produced um, a uh, full link, full link documentary called the wounded blue uh, that you can find on things like Amazon and uh, people, I think watching that will be appalled what happens to a wounded officer, um, the way that they're treated either purposefully or just forgotten about, uh, not just by the public, but by their own agencies. And, and, and when you see something like that and what some people are going through, wounded officers are going through, whether it be a physical injury or something like PTSD, uh, it's going to be very eye opening. Uh, to some people. And, and I think I say that to say if somebody watches that and it speaks to them about somebody in public safety that they know, um, you know, direct them to something like that video or a podcast or, or a talk uh, that, 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 that just talked about what that person's going through because a, it may normalize some of the reactions and let them know they're not crazy. And B, it may give them an avenue of, Oh, there are people out there that understand what I'm going through and can help with it. So I, I think that 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 would be my answer for both just being uh, vocal uh, uh, thanks to the general public safety population and helping those that might be going through something rough. 
Hey, for everybody listening, what I'll do is I'll make sure we get the links for everything that Trevor just suggested in the description below. So that way you can click on those rather easily. You can get to them. All right, Trevor. I think that sounds good, man. Is there anything else that we missed? I don't think so. I was, yeah, was going to joke that if uh, if you want to see what this voice comes from, uh, go watch the Wounded Blue documentary. <laughs> I'm going to have a link I'm for it, man. I'm telling you, I'm just going to put a link That's awesome. In. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll make sure it gets in there. I appreciate it. Trevor, it's been great. This, is, this has been fantastic. I uh, really appreciate you being here. This is definitely my passion. It's something that, you know, we talked about earlier that, that uh, hey, you and I met in 2003 and said that this is what <laughs> we're doing. We'd have probably both laughed. Yeah. But, uh, but man, what I'm glad a, we're here, uh, man. A, yeah, I'm so glad we're here because yeah. it's, uh, you know, both both groups are doing big things, you know, for people that need it. So I, I'm, I'm excited for all of us. Well, I appreciate you, man. I'm going to close this out. All right, guys and gals, that's it for the episode of the Survival Show podcast. Many, many thanks to Dr. Trevor Wilkins for his expertise and help for all of us as it relates to everyday survival for our first responders and their family and friends. So don't forget to check us out on the survival show at the survivalshow.com. Also check out our sponsor, the sportsman's guide. Use the link in the description below to go find all kinds of cool gear for survival and so much more. And again, I'll mention, I'll have the links for Trevor's thin line counseling, the wounded blue and the Amazon link that he suggested as well. I'll make sure all that gets in there. Help us out. Subscribe to the podcast. Now it's free to do so. That way you ensure that you don't miss out on this or any episode. And if you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with your friends and go over to iTunes. And specifically, in this case, share it with your first responder friends. If you're hearing some of the things that Dr. Wilkins is discussing here and it sounds like somebody you know, then share the podcast with them. Share those links that he mentioned for his counseling and the Amazon link and all that good stuff. And many, many thanks to all you all who've already given us a five-star rating. I was looking at the other day. It's fantastic. You all have been great. So, um I think that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Survival Show podcast. Keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.